Father, we come before you thanking you for the evening, thanking you for uh, the services this morning, and I pray that it would continue to resonate in our hearts through the week, and may we ever be looking to the Savior. As we look at the doctrine this evening, I pray that our hearts would be encouraged as we learn and delve deeper into what it means to be a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And may the doctrine that we learn in this class help us to have a clear understanding of, of why you have written your word and the major doctrines as we go through each one of them, and help us to have a clear understanding so that the evil one would not get a foothold in any aspect of our life. We know that that's the reason why many cults grow is because there are so many who, are, who claim to be Christians who do not have an understanding of biblical doctrine. Help it not to be said of us here at Yellowstone. So as we go through the, uh, the, the, the study this evening, I pray that, uh, again, that it would encourage hearts. Be with our missionaries tonight in their preparation for the work that you have called them to do this coming week. We ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. If somebody could read that good and loud for us, please. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and he, the new, has come. Okay, we are uh, in the prolegomena, which is simply a term for the introduction. Uh, this is uh, on the notes. This would be pages uh, 50 to 67, written at the top. Um, and down the bottom of that, uh, or actually I understand it's at the top of page 2 for you, would be how does systematic theology relate to one's mind? Um, and if you're if you're a little confused, if you go back or if you're listening to this online, we actually covered the first part of the introduction on January the 7th. Um, and that was because I completely skipped over an entire lesson. I had my notes, I had everything ready, and then just pulled the wrong ones out when I came down here to class. So we did go back and we've covered the other section, and so now we are in the introduction, uh, and we are down to point number six. So let's let's consider let's consider again Second uh, Corinthians chapter five verse seventeen. Go ahead and read that again, please, Gabe. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ. He is a new creation. The old has passed away, and he, the new, has come. Okay. So the first point there, the redeemed mind. The redeemed mind was found on page 53, and the question was, what happens as a result of salvation? Who has an answer that you can give me on, on that lesson, or from that particular subtitle? You know and comprehend the glory of God. Okay. Very good. Anybody else have something different? Uh, uh, Sterling? I think it's as you said this morning that uh, our desires will line up with uh, God's desires. And we'll our wants will change. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. And thank you for those answers. When we talk about the depraved mind and we say that somebody is in, in biblical terminology or in, in the terminology that is used in the theological world, we use this term right here. Total depravity. What does total depravity mean? Does it mean that we are as wicked as we possibly could be in every aspect of our life? No. No, we're not. Now, some people do manifest manifest that in their life. You, we can immediately think of people from history, Hitler, Mussolini, Stalin, whoever it may be. These are people who, well, in fact, you go to, anybody here ever been to, especially in the military, any kind of a war zone or a, a recent conflict that has been, if you've been in a situation like that, you will know that when you take law out of the question, man will go to the furthest extremes if there are no boundaries. 
If you don't give boundaries to your children, if I don't give boundaries to my children, what do you think is going to happen? Mayhem. Mayhem. And ultimately, anarchy. So when we're talking about total depravity, we're not saying that you are as wicked as you possibly can be. Total depravity really refers to the spiritual well-being of a person, and that is simply this. Here's God. We use this to represent his holiness here. So here's God, and here's you. There is a gap here between the two of you, and where did that gap end? Or where was, what, at what point in history was there not a gap between God and man? Before sin entered the world. Okay, who was that? Very good answer. Um, Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve. That was the last time that there was no gap between God and man. Because that gap was broken when Adam sinned, and it is through that that we have the term, or the in, in, in theological terms, we'll look at this when we look at hamartiology, which is the doctrine of sin. We find that in that sin, the original sin, that all men fell. We looked at that this morning, Romans chapter 3, verse 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And because all have sinned, we are all in Adam. Somebody look up Romans chapter 5. And keep your, keep your place there in Ephesians, because we're going to look at that here in just a moment. But if somebody could read Romans chapter 5, verse 12. And read that aloud for us, please. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, Okay, Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So this, this, is, this is the problem that we have, we as mankind have. Because everything about you and I from the moment we are born, because we are born with something that is called sin nature, and we have said this before, some of you may not have been here. How many sins does it take to make you a sinner? None. None. It's a trick question because you and I are born sinners. Now, when we sin, whatever that first sin may be, and none of us here re would remember our very first sin. It could be picking on a brother or a sister. It could be throwing a temper tantrum. It could be uh, mom and dad saying no to something, and you get up and, and climb out of your crib and went and got a cookie in the middle of the night, and you actually stole it. Whatever that first sin was that actually manifested itself, it didn't manifest itself because of your surroundings or your environment or your parents. It was manifested because that's who you are in Adam. And because you and I are sinners, and because we are sinful nature, we, do, we don't, as the saying goes, we do, not, we, do, we do not become sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. So there has to be a solution. And that's what the entire scripture is. Genesis chapter 3, we find the beginning of the, the Proto-Evangelium, which is the first gospel found in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. This is what Satan is going or what is going to happen to Satan. And this is what's going to happen with Jesus Christ eventually when he comes. And the entire Old Testament is preparing thousands of years and generations of people who are looking forward with hope by faith, to something that is outside of themselves in order to be able to restore that fellowship. And the fellowship, of course, comes in the form of Jesus Christ. So when we refer to somebody as being totally depraved, we are saying that everything in your mind, everything about you, we're going to add this one right here, in this sin nature, screams in rebellion against God. This is why God cannot accept you and I apart from Jesus Christ. This is why when, when we read this verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 5.17 that Gabe read, we find that, that therefore if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. God doesn't dust off the old you. 
He, he doesn't just he doesn't just make a, a a little bit of do a little bit of house cleaning. He has to put something in you that is not there to begin with, and that is a new creation. Somebody read and again. Still keep your finger there in Ephesians. But if somebody wants to flip back a couple of pages to Ephesians chapter two and read verse one for us. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Okay. You were dead. I was dead in trespasses and sins. That's all we come to the table with. But because we are dead, that means that there is nothing. That means every part of you, it doesn't matter what you call it, you can say your soul, your heart, you can say your mind, and you could say, say your body. Every bit of this says, I hate God. Think about how long it was before some of you came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You're not born a Christian. Doesn't matter where you were born. And whether you came to faith at a young age or whether you came to faith at an older age, Brother Mike here, he only came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ a little over three years ago. He was white-headed by then. But God in His mercy... God in His grace brings people to Himself and through His Holy Spirit gives us not just the grace, but He gives us the faith to believe as well. This is Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that, what is He speaking about there? That is the faith to even believe. You can't work up the faith to believe in God. Now you can say, well, yeah, I... You know, there was a point in history and this guy named Jesus, he was a really good guy and he comes down and he lives a good moral life and eventually goes, dies on the cross and some people say he came to life again. Anybody can say that. The Muslims say that. There are other faiths and religions that believe that Jesus Christ came to earth and that he was a good prophet. But what you cannot say apart from the Holy Spirit of God is that Jesus Christ is my Savior because I was a sinner. There was no hope apart from Him and I needed Him to redeem me completely. It's because if you, if you and I, when we get to heaven, if we were to stand before Him and He were to say, why should I let you into my heaven? If there is any part of your answer that begins or includes I, me, myself, you won't get in. It's all about Jesus. Because Jesus did everything that was necessary when he died on the cross. The work was complete. This is why he's able to say, Tetelestai, it is finished. A once and for all completed action, never to be done again. So this is a redeemed mind. Let's look at Romans, or in Ephesians chapter 6. We talk about the whole armor of God and there's, I, th I find that there's quite a misunderstanding in regards to the armor of God. You know, some of that I think comes maybe if you have come from a uh, from a background maybe where you were when you went to to Sunday school or VBS or you went to junior church or whatever it may be. There's a misunderstanding about the armor of God, and you normally get a picture. You guys help me out if you've gone through this before. You go to you go to class VBS or whatever it is. And there's a picture of this guy, and what do they do? They take the little pieces of the armor, and they put it on him, okay? Now, in one sense, it's like, and we're going to delve into this a lot later, but in one sense, it's like the fruit of the Spirit. When you and I are saved, we have the fruit of the Spirit in our life. Notice it's not fruits, it's Fruit. So you can't pick and choose the ones you want and the ones you don't like, or or if there's if you struggle with patience or kindness or self-control, no, that's that's not an argument that we have. The fruit of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit indwells you, and He then begins changing you to reflect the fruit of the Spirit. And the way that the way that you can know, one of the ways that you can know you're a believer as a test is. Do I have more of the fruit of the Spirit in my life now than I did, say, 20 years ago or 10 years ago? Am I seeing change? 
And the fruit of the armor or the, the spirit, the, 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 the armor of God that we have here in Ephesians chapter 6, look at verse 10 or verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Oh, I wish, I wish there were a number of churches that would actually get and understand this. The fight is not against one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Your, your real fight in your home, if you struggle, it's not between you and your spouse. It's not between you and your kids. That's not the real fight. The real fight is the evil one and his little minions who would seek to destroy your home and mine. That's the real issue that we're dealing with. And if we would understand, you can read missionary books, for example, and they talk about things like demon possession and demon oppression and, and some of the scary things. And maybe, maybe you don't like reading missionary books because they talk about things like that. Let me tell you something. When we were in Liberia, that stuff's very real. And to see somebody who is possessed by a demon is one of the scariest things that I think I have ever seen in my life. But let me tell you something. That kind of oppression and possession is found right here in America too. It's found right here in Cheyenne. And the reason that we don't see it is because our minds sometimes are so clouded with all that the world has to offer, the media, the entertainment, the whatever it is that's going on in our lives, that we're not actually looking for the spiritual battle that we find ourselves in. Because it is a spiritual battle. In fact, in 2 Corinthians, Paul is speaking to the church at Corinth and he tells them, he says, is it any wonder that the evil one has ministers who basically masquerade themselves as angels of light? They are seeking to deceive you and I from the truth. And if they can do it, every little skirmish they win can be a big battle. In the end, if you're a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, though, you don't have to fear because ultimately the battle over sin, death, hell, the grave, and the evil one has been won by Jesus Christ. So a redeemed mind, though, when we're talking about putting on the whole armor of God, I believe that the scriptures are clear that we actually have this. We just don't appropriate ourselves of this gear. Because everything that you need, for example, he talks in verse 17... Put on the sword of the spirit. spirit. Does anybody not have that? We've got it, right? Put on the helmet of salvation. He's writing to believers in the book of, or in the city of Ephesus. And if he's talking to believers, that must mean that they have already the helmet of salvation. Therefore, you and I should be able to withstand the fiery darts of the evil one. The problem is, the problem is that it often hits us where we're maybe not looking or not being careful in a particular area. So a redeemed mind knows and comprehends the glory of God. This is why we, this is why we have mentioned it. In fact, here in, in uh, uh, one of our recent lessons, we were talking and I shared with you again Spurgeon's Catechism, which, which I've passed out to the Saturday class, and so we can get more books if, if there's any interest. Here's one right here. Spurgeon's Catechism. I recommend that you go through this with your kids. If you don't have kids, go through with it. With your grandkids, with you and your wife. If you're single, go through it by yourself. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God. Glorify God. And I'll tell you right now, you can't do it by yourself. <clears throat> Sorry. You can try all you want to, but you don't have the ability to be able to do it apart from the Holy Spirit who resides within you, giving you the strength and the ability to be able to do that. You see, it's because of Jesus Christ that this gap and the problem of the lack of communication that we had with God has been resolved. And we should rejoice in that every single day. We should be getting up every morning. It doesn't matter what day of the week. If it ends in a Y, do it that day. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. I still I'll explain it to you after, Mike. Draw <laughs> that man a picture. Exactly. Seriously. 
you get up in the morning, how about thanking God that He bridged the gap through His Son, Jesus Christ, so that you don't have to worry about eternal wrath? That'd be a great way to start the day, wouldn't it? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Whom have I in heaven but thee, and there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. My heart and my flesh faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Psalm 73, 25 and 26. That's why Paul tells the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, Whether you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. That should be our highest aim, is to glory, glorify God. And I know it's not easy. It's a struggle every single day. That's one of the things that we looked at this morning. And we'll look again at, Lord willing, next Sunday. Hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Hungering and thirsting in such a way that we just have to have the food of God's Word. We just have to spend time with God. Secondly, not just a redeemed mind, but a renewed mind. Somebody read Colossians chapter 3 verse 10 for us, and if somebody else could look up Ephesians 4.23. Colossians 3.10. And the question is, what does the mind acquire when entering a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? What's the answer? Helmet of salvation. Okay, helmet of salvation. What else? Anybody else have a different answer? Capacity to put out the older sinful ways of thinking. Good, good answer. Yep. Okay, somebody read Colossians 3.10. You have it? Some, does somebody have it? Yep. Have put on the new self who is being, being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Putting on, it's the same term that is being used by Paul in Ephesians chapter 6 that we just looked on. Put on the whole armor of God. Who has Ephesians 4.23? Mom? And be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Okay. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Listen. The battle that you and I have, and I have heard this down through the years, so many people say, oh, I just, or he just fell into sin, or she just fell into sin. No, you and I don't fall, just fall into sin. We walk in with our eyes wide open. And more times than not, the reason why we walk into that sin is because we have not renewed it in the spirit of Jesus Christ. What is James chapter 1? You don't have to turn there for the sake of time. Maybe some of you might remember off the top of your head, but James chapter 1 is very clear that the certain progression that takes place, it's identical to Psalm 1. You begin thinking about something and those thoughts eventually lead to death. Man cannot say he is tempted of God because God cannot tempt anybody, neither was he tempted as we are with sin. So the renewed mind, in fact, uh, Paul speaks about this in verse 22 of that same chapter, one verse up, and he says, put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life. Now again, who's he talking to here? Is he talking to believers or unbelievers? Nope. Huh? He's talking to believers. Listen, if, if you're struggling in some particular area of your life or you're struggling with a particular sin, Ephesians is a wonderful book to get right down to the nitty-gritty and to read this and realize these were people with the same problems that you and I face, just without electricity and iPads. They face the same sins. They face the same lust. They face the same temptations. And he's talking to them. In fact, when we get to 1 Corinthians, Paul is talking to the church at Corinth. And he says, and he gives this long list in chapter 6 of all the bad things that are going on. And he says, such were some of you, but you have been washed. You have been sanctified. You have been justified. In other words, you're not that anymore. So stop acting that way. We have mentioned this before. 
What, what is the, and, and, and I realize that maybe it's a friend or maybe it's something that you've gone through. I, I don't know. That's not the point right now. But in something like AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, what's the first lesson that you have to learn? What's the first tenet of AA? Realize that once you're an alcoholic, you are always an alcoholic. No, you are not. The verb tense that Paul uses, he says, such were some of you. You're not that anymore. Because you have been changed, because you, have a, you are a new creation in Christ Jesus, you can't say, once I'm this, I'm always that. No, because when Jesus Christ sees you, Ephesians chapter 1, he sees you as a saint. He sees you as redeemed. He sees you as bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. You are now a child of God. This is one of the reasons why I have a problem with some of those, so many of those 12-step type programs that are out there because they're not biblical, number one. I'm not saying that they can't help somebody, but if you don't begin and end in your counseling with the Word of God, you're on shaky ground to begin with. And again, it doesn't matter what sin, whatever you have been involved with, the Bible is clear. And, and, and there's something else here as well, and I meant to cover this, the Lord willing, I'm going to cover a little bit of it next week. When Jesus died on the cross, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, how much of your sin was covered? Okay, trick question. How much of this was covered? 100. Okay, I hear 100. I hear none. None, okay. Anybody else? You see, Jesus didn't save us from our sins to leave us wallowing in our guilt. And, and, and you know, I, I, have, I have been there. I know what it's like. You get yourself involved in some kind of sin instead of keeping your eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ, instead of bringing glory to Him. You have decided you're going to live for yourself and in living for yourself, you, you then sin, you commit whatever act it is or whatever thought it is or whatever. And the next thing you know, you're beating yourself up for the next 10, 15, 20, 25, 30 years. God doesn't save us to leave us in our guilt. And I believe that when he saves us, he redeems us because he gives us new soul, heart, and mind. And one day we'll have a new body. Again, this is the wonder of biblical Christianity because you, you couldn't make these things up if you were writing the book. So the question is, why do we live in that guilt? Why do we live in the guilt of whatever it is that, that has gone on in your life or whatever it is that you have done? You know, one, one, of the, one of the saddest aspects of church ministry that I have seen and had to deal with are people either who have, maybe they have gone through a divorce, maybe they've gone through an abortion, and they just allow the evil one to keep beating themselves up. You know, we as believers, if we're going to help bear one another's burdens as we saw this morning and fulfill the law of Christ, that means that we have to come alongside one another and help you to understand and realize that when Jesus Christ forgives, he forgives you totally. There's nothing left. There's nothing left to forgive. And really, when you and I have guilt and we're dealing with that guilt in our minds, what we're actually saying is we're not completely confident that we've been forgiven. You have been forgiven. I have been forgiven. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, such were some of you, but you have been washed. The word there is to be completely cleaned. Now, it's not like when our kids are growing up and you tell them, okay, go in there and wash your face. And they take a little bit of water, maybe a finger under the water spout. No. When we say wash your face, we want you to get in there with some soap. We want you to scrub behind your ears, get a washcloth and, 
and or if you're from the south, a washcloth. Come on, guys. Some of you live down south. And you take that washcloth and you wash and you scrub your face until your face just turns red from the exertion. And that's cleaning. That's what God does with you and I. And if you're living with some of that from your past, turn it over to God. Because He's either a big enough God to have forgiven you and cleansed you, or you have to bear some of that yourself until you get to eternity. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't have regrets for the sin that we do, or the sin that we have done. But we have to relinquish that to Him. Because sin, as Paul tells the church in Rome, sin will not have, do not allow sin to have dominion over you. Any aspect of that sin. A renewed mind. Put off, put on. Put off the old, put on the new. If you're struggling in a particular area with a particular sin, put that off and put something in its place. Don't leave an empty hole in your life. Again, it requires a new way to think and a capacity to put off the old sinful ways of thinking. You see, when, when you and I deal with sin in our lives, you get to that point because you have often meditated on it over and over and over. And the longer you meditate on that, the longer it's going to take you down. And then it's harder to get back out of that the deeper that hole gets. But here's the wonderful truth of the scripture. When God saves you, it doesn't matter how deep a hole you dug. It's level ground at the foot of the cross. We are forgiven. So live in the fact that he has forgiven you. If you're a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you've got to put that past behind you. You can't keep wondering the what if, what if, what if I had done this, what if they had done that, what if, whatever... No, you can't live that way because God is sovereign and the steps of a good man or a good person are ordered by the Lord and he directs their ways. Does anybody have any questions on that? On that section? No? All right. C. The illuminated mind. What do believers need and how does the Holy Spirit help the believer? Who has an answer for us? Need God's help, and the Holy Spirit enlightens the mind to comprehend, embrace, and obey the truths. Yep, that's exactly it. Do you remember the account in Luke chapter 24, verse 45, on the road to Emmaus? When the two disciples are walking and the Lord Jesus Christ has to open up their minds to reveal to them the scriptures. Did the scriptures not say this, this, and this? And he walks them all the way through the scriptures and they get to the, the town that they're going to and they sit down and Jesus breaks bread and he prays and then he disappears out of their sight and they say to him, or they say, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us, by the way, while he opened up the scriptures and showed these things to us? You see, the scriptures have a way of being able to illuminate the mind. This is why we said this morning, I don't care what you're going through in your life. You come and talk to me, I'm going to start and end with the Bible. Somebody came up and asked me about something this morning, and I said, listen, if, when I sit down with a couple, here's what I do. I might give them four or five minutes to be able to tell me what they think the problem is in their marriage or their problems with their kids or whatever. But that's about all they're going to get. And I'm not trying to be nasty about it, and I'm not trying to be facetious. But I can tell you within four or five minutes, I can normally tell within the first one or two minutes what the problem is, and that is you. <coughs> Seriously. You are the issue. Nobody else. There may be others who have wronged you or faulted you or disrespected you or whatever, but the real issue that a pastor has that he has to deal with is how he can get you to the point where you are like Jesus Christ. My biggest issue each week is not my wife, it's not my kids, it's not my grandson. Well, sometimes, no, I'm just kidding. It's not my grandson. It's not that at all. It's me. When I stand before God, 
I'm not going to have somebody else, Brother Gabe's not going to be able to stand up and give an account for me. I'm going to give an account. I'm the one that has to have the personal relationship with God. You can't have that personal relationship for me. Now, I don't want anybody to misunderstand this point. I am not saying that, that, that there is not abuse, that there is not that there are not tragedies, that there are not whatever it is that goes on in the world. I'm not saying that those things don't exist. They do. But ultimately, when you and I stand before God, what is, what is God going to ask? Is the question going to be, what did they do? How did they change your life? How did they whatever? It's going to be about you and your relationship with Him. So to have an illuminated mind, I can then take the scriptures and I can say, this is how the Bible addresses your issue. This is how the Bible can help you and encourage you and your brothers and sisters can help you to become more like Jesus Christ. And that's what brings us to number four, a Christ-like mind. This is what I have as a summary and I want you to look with me at Romans chapter 11. When we think and act as God wants us to act, we will receive God's blessings for our obedience. It is idolatry to reject the mind of Christ and the ultimate pattern of Christian mindedness is the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to Romans chapter 11. Oh, the depth, verse 33, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of man? God. God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For through him and, or from him and through him and to him are all things. Therefore, to him be glory forever. Amen. You see, this is what it means to have a Christ-like mind. Each one of these things that the book is speaking about, it builds one upon the other. And it all points to the same direction. It doesn't matter which way you slice the scripture. You can start in the Old Testament, you can start in the New. The Old Testament will show you that the children of Israel didn't obey, so they found themselves under judgment. In the New Testament, they didn't obey God, they found themselves under judgment. So somebody has to stand in the gap for them. And that's Jesus Christ. Number five, the tested mind. Again, we have said this. Somebody like to look up Isaiah chapter one and verse 18. The evil one is devious. You will notice that if I, when I am speaking, um, uh, I very rarely will use the, the term Satan or Lucifer. Lucifer was his original name. Uh, that was the name that was given to him. He was the greatest and brightest of, of all the angelic be beings. He was at the top of the totem pole when it come, came to the angels. But then we find that he is cast down to the earth and while he is called Satan, I prefer to call him the evil one, which is also what we find in scripture. Um, but he is evil one and his dominions and they seek to change and challenge the plans that God has for your life and for mine. So somebody read Isaiah chapter 1 verse 18. Do you have that Anthony? Yes. <clears throat> Come on, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. How does Satan seek to influence the life and mind of believers? How does he seek to influence your life and your mind? Doubt. Doubt? Negativity. Fear, negativity. Yeah, what else? Confusion. Confusion. How about trials? If you're going through a trial, you're going through a tough time in your life, and the evil one will comes along and says, well, you know, if you were really his child, how, how could he put you through this? Remind him of the book of Job next time he does that to you. Say, I've read the book of Job and I know how it ends. 
I know how it begins. And through all of those things, Job did not sin with his mouth, nor did he charge God foolishly. Lord, help me not to charge you foolishly either. He wants us to think contrary to God's word. This is why he'll put little doubts. He, 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 the evil one will never come up and just slap you upside the head with a two by four. He'll come with a little toothpick and he'll just prod a little bit at a time in your mind. Did God really say that? Does God really mean that? Is that really verse, does that verse really apply to you? Poke, poke, poke. When we think contrary to God's word, it makes us act in a way that brings disobedience to the will of God. The will of God really is very simple. John MacArthur wrote a little book many years ago. I think it's a great book on the will of God. And you know, contrary to what some people may think, it's not, the will of God doesn't require 300 pages to be able to decipher what God's will is for your life and mine. You know what it is? And this came right from John MacArthur, so if he's listening, if he ever listens, we'll give credit to him, all right? Number one. I just heard the first one. Who said that? Mr. Orr. Go ahead again, Mr. Orr. Salvation. Salvation. When we get to heaven, there will not be one person missing from the book of life that should be in heaven and find, find themselves in hell. And there will not be one person who is in hell, who should be in heaven because somehow God overlooked them. When God talks about in his word and he tells us about eternal life, that eternal life began long before you and I were born. It began in eternity past. God set his eternal love upon you. And that eternity goes in both directions. He will not lose one person. You say, well... That must mean there's only a certain amount of people. Yes, there is a certain amount of people. There's going to be a certain amount of people in hell and a certain amount of people in heaven. But the reality is this. That number is not your business or mine. That number belongs to God and God alone. The Bible is very clear, though, that it will be an innumerable host. We're not going to get up to heaven and we're not going to be going around and somebody's going to be counting feet and divided by two. No, everybody who's supposed to be there will be there. So what's the second part of God's will? By the way, I'll give you a clue. All of these begin with S. Sanctification. What does sanctification? What does sanctification mean? In a nutshell. Set apart. Holy. So it is God's will, and if it is God's will for us to be sanctified, then who is responsible for making sure that I'm sanctified? Yourself. Nope. You are. Nope. Christ is. The Holy Spirit. So that means when you get up on a, on a really bad day, and you go to work, or your life's falling apart, or whatever it may be, at the end of that day, you may have not thought one thing about Yellowstone Baptist Church or the sermon that you heard today or read your Bible one time or prayed a prayer or done anything, at the end of the day, it is still Christ who is responsible for sanctifying you and I. This is why we can look at Philippians chapter 1. He who began a good work in you will perform it until when? The day of Jesus Christ. Until he returns and then we'll be glorified or until he takes us from this life and we take our last breath and we wake up in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. What's the third, what do you think the third one is? Separation. 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 What do you think it means to be separated? 
We just read the verse in Isaiah chapter 1. Um, to be set apart from the world. Right, well, it kind of, it's a little bit more than that. It's, it's to be sanctified, is to be set apart, but it's basically to reason within your mind to come apart from the world. Okay, so it's a little bit deeper level here. So we're going to say to come apart. We'll be breaking this down more in the matter of salvation. So what's the fourth step? Uh, no, no, but I think he addressed that in one of them, but that wasn't it. Okay, well, serving, serving I think he also covers within uh, sanctification. He covers separation. Uh, I'll, I'll put it down for it. Huh? Separate? No. You ready for this? This is going to be mind-blowing. If you're looking for God's will in your life and you have followed these three steps right here and you're a believer and you have been sanctified, you are striving to become holy, you are separating yourself. And this here I should actually put separate or come apart from the world. Number four, you ready? I hope you're writing this down. So, do what you want. <laughs> that way we stay alliterated. So, they're all this. You know, it, it really is that simple. And yet, good, whether it was in Bible college or in the early years of our life, when we were married, I mean, it was like a struggle. And, and, and man, where, where should we go? Well, should we serve in missions? Should we serve in a pastorate? Well, let's get the National Geographic and see what the country is this particular month and see if that's where we're supposed to go. You know, at the end of the day, there are 197 different countries in the world. My wife and I could have gone to any one of them that we wanted to and still been within the will of God. Well, you came to the right one. Well, we did. We came back here, yeah. I know, I'm voting. Absolutely. I like your wife. Well, that's good. Listen. speakers and uh, before that you know it's important to be moving <laughs> it's easier to steer a ship that's in, in motion but um, so they prayed they were thinking about it and just couldn't seem to get that call to France they were so in sure that that was where they were supposed to go well they ended up in French speaking Canada <laughs> that works you know, there may have been a group of French people there that they were supposed to, that they could have reached. But you know, a lot of people, it's it's almost like you expect the the sky to open up or the clouds to form in certain way, or you read your tea leaves on a on a Monday morning, and it's like, well, somehow God's will is going to be revealed to me, and I'm going to know what it is that He wants me to do. If you're doing these things right here. Make the choices because if you're living this way, your will is going to be what God's will is for you. But we make it so complicated. You know, I believe that there would be more people who served on the mission field or more people who served in ministry and churches if they just realized these three simple points. Now do what God calls you to do. But we make it so hard. Letter F, the profitable. Yes. Yes. Cover some of the things that um, Satan uses, like philosophies, worldviews. Yep. Things like that, because that does affect us. Sure. In a lot of ways, and we get our ideas of what is going on within our lives from our worldview or philosophies <clears throat> that we put into our minds regularly. It can even it can even be politics. Listen, uh, you everybody here has been here long enough to know that I don't talk politics from the pulpit, and I do that deliberately. It's not because I don't have a position, 
But this world is not our home. We are striving for an eternal kingdom. And several of you know, because we have talked about this, it doesn't matter what letter that you vote for, they're all the same, they're all two sides of the same corrupt coin at the end of the day. And the problem is, we could use 535 people in Congress plus an entire administration, this one and the one came before, and the one before that, and the one before that, and the one after that, that'll be elected in November, to go out and eat grass like Nebuchadnezzar for a while. So we could have some humility and some understanding of a country that was founded on Christian principles that needs to get back to what God has in store. But what happens if we don't get our way on November the 6th? Pray. Okay. What else? Read the Bible. Read the Bible? Why would we want to read the Bible? So we can learn more about God. Okay, but we're talking about politics. Think about that one for just a moment. We're talking about politics so we don't get our way, so the wrong person gets into the presidency in our mind, and the wrong person becomes president next. What do we do then? Uh, move to Canada. <laughs> Gabe, you're not helping. <laughs> what you said was incorrect. There is no wrong person that's going to win. Because it's predetermined. Yes, that's what Sister Melissa just said. Yeah, she said, the the heart of the king, the heart of the king, is moved by our king. You know, I, I stopped worrying about that a long time ago. I mean, was I disappointed in different elections down through the years? Yeah, sure, absolutely. But one of the things that I've had to realize is that God is sovereign and the more you focus and you learn from his word about how holy he is, you'll also recognize how sovereign he is and you won't get up on November the 6th worrying and thinking that your entire life has fallen apart because the wrong person's in the White House. So, the, like praying is really good because then we can pray for our president vice president, everyone in a position of authority because we're commanded to, number one. Yeah. But maybe the Lord will use that to help us to have a quiet, still live a quiet and peaceable life regardless of what we do. Mike is probably the only one that was here, I think, at that point, besides my family. But in November, the church had just called me or was getting ready to call me here in 2020. In the first service that we held, we had a prayer meeting and we prayed for the administration of America. And whatever happens on November 5th of this year, we're going to get together and we're going to pray because that's what God calls us to, to lead a peaceable life, to pray that God will do whatever it takes to bring them into submission to his word. But... But it may be that we are facing a time of judgment because God also sends judgment to bring his purposes to a nation that refuses to listen to him. We have murdered almost 70 million babies in this country. That's not political. That's moral. That is an issue that we have to deal with and we have to understand from God's perspective because God calls it murder. Something has to change. Otherwise, we're going to find ourselves going the same way as all the nations that have come before us. We're a very young nation. There are many countries who have had a lot longer dynasties than we will ever have here in America. And God brought them to their knees. You know, Egypt has never been a world power since Israel was allowed to flee across the Red Sea. That was over 3,000 years ago. profitable mind. Look with me at Psalm 119. If, actually, if somebody, we're almost out of time, so Psalm 119, I do want to finish this. these last two here. Psalm 119, somebody read verse 97, and if somebody else could read verse 148. Psalm 
Psalm 119, verse 97, and then verse 148. Anybody? Oh, how love I thy law. It is my meditation all the day. All the day. Who has 148? Anthony? My eyes are awake before the watches of the night. I may meditate on your promise. He used a great illustration here about a coffee percolator. And he gives this vivid picture of meditating. How does this apply to you and I? Does anybody have an answer there? Sort of been on pages 56 and 57. It's not just about reading the word. Okay. It's about understanding the word, learning the word, and applying the word. Okay. How does that apply with the illustration he gives of the coffee percolator, though? There's to be a cycle as the water goes through and comes back repeatedly. Yep. The water is filtered and the flavor of the coffee beans, it goes through that water as it goes through and it transfers that to the water so the water doesn't just change color. It actually gets the flavor of the coffee bean. And the same way Christians need to cycle their thoughts through the grounds of God's word until they start to think and act godly. That's my challenge to you this week. Be a Christian percolator. Allow God's word to flow through you. Do you remember what the Lord Jesus Christ said to the woman at the well? He said, in John chapter 4, he said, If you drink of me, you will never thirst again. To, to, so to take the living word of God and the, the water of, of this representation of, of who Jesus Christ is as the living water and allowing that to flow through you in every part of your life, you are going to look more and more and more like Jesus Christ. And finally, a balanced mind. What is the Alpha and Omega of Christian theology? And we're going to look at one more verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Who has the answer for that one? What is the Alpha and Omega of Christian theology? Christ. Okay. But according to the book, does anybody have an answer written down? Knowledge of God and knowledge of the truth. If somebody asks you a question, are there any absolutes? You can say, yes, there are. They are found in God and God alone. There are a lot of things that are going to change in the world. Kingdoms will come, kingdoms will go, philosophies will change. But one thing that will not change is Jesus Christ. The same, Hebrews thirteen seven. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Above all, at the very center of a Christian worldview is the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly or foolishness to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. If you struggle to understand the Word of God, it doesn't it doesn't stand to reason, first of all, that you may... Well, first of all, it may be because you're not a true believer. But secondly, you may be a believer and you're just struggling because you're a baby Christian or you're young or you're mature in the faith. And it may be that you have to take the time. The more time you spend in God's Word... Listen, I'm where I'm at. I can recite the scriptures that I have memorized down through the years, but it has taken 30 years of ministry for me to be where I'm at today. Do you know how many hours it takes to become proficient at something? I want to close with this illustration. Some of you who are in the business world will probably know because you have heard this. For example, if you want to learn to play the piano, or if you want to learn to learn a language, you know how long it takes? Two thousand hours to become proficient at something. 
I didn't say a genius. I didn't say an expert. But they say to become an expert at something, it actually takes 10,000 hours. So, let's divide this. Somebody pull out your calculator real quick on your phone or whatever it may be. And I want you to take the 2,000 hours and I want you to divide it, say, by 5 years. So take 2,000 divided by 5 gives us what number? 400, right? Okay, now divide that by 365. You have approximately one hour per day. What about this one here? 10,000 hours is approximately five hours per day. Every day, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, to become what some would consider an expert. I, I'm no expert. I'm striving towards a higher level of understanding of God's word and every day I learn something new. On the men's class on Thursday nights, we're going through Hebrews. There are things I've learned that I have never seen in Hebrews before. I've read Hebrews more times than I can count. But I'm still learning and you're still gonna learn but you're never going to become a growing Christian or a Christian who's able to share these things with others if all you're doing is spending one minute in the morning reading something that comes off a little calendar and it just gives you a little crumb for the day. It has to be so much more than that. You have to be willing to invest in your time in that which is really important. You want to learn to play the piano or play an instrument or learn a language? You're not going to do it running your hands up and down the scale one time, 30 seconds a day. Requires time playing the arpeggios, running the scales up and down, up and down, up and down, playing the drudgery parts until you can then play the more proficient parts. And there's a saying in the music world, there's only two kinds of music to play. Anybody here play an instrument? Any of you ever played an instrument? Good, I'll come see you after. Um, no, seriously. <laughs> so when you're, playing, when you're playing an instrument, there's only two kinds of music in the, in the world to play. What are they, Sterling? Do you remember? Nope. Nope. Easy and impossible. What's, what's the difference between an easy piece and an impossible piece? Practice. If you want to become more proficient at God's word, you're going to have to put in time practicing, learning, meditating. That's why these things you see... The things that we find in the scriptures, they come right from everyday life. Because the people in the Bible times, they faced the same problems that you did. They had, they had to deal with 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, just like you and I. They didn't have any more time, they didn't have any less time. But what they did do is they put things in their minds and in their hearts and in their lives that actually changed the way that they approached. For example... How many of us have verses by our front door? Of what? Verses by our front door, just like the children of Israel were commanded to do. Put the verses by your front door so that you will remember on the way in and out. How many of us carry verses on our wrist? I don't see anybody wearing a phylactery. <laughs> phylactery is that little square box that goes on the forehead. None of us wear that. But you know what we do have now that they didn't have in the Old Testament? We have the entire Word of God on our cell phones. And we can take it everywhere we go. There's no excuse for not meditating. There's no excuse for not growing. And I want to encourage you to strive to be more proficient in God's Word. 
because the rewards are great, not just in this life, but in the life to come as well. Amen? Amen. Any questions? Let's pray. Thank you, Father, again for our time this evening. I pray that you have been glorified in what we have shared tonight. We need to have changed minds. And in having changed minds, we will have a changed body and a renewed spirit within us to, to live a holy life. Lord, each one of us struggle with various things in our life. And I know I've said this several times over the last few weeks, but we, knew where, we know where the answer is. We just don't like going and getting it. Lord, we need to be hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Help us to do so more so this week, maybe than we have in a long time. We ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.